when people experience weight stigma, they tend to internalize that and believe it. And that makes it harder on the one hand to successfully manage weight. We have lots of studies showing that experiencing weight stigma tends to make more weight come on. But on top of that, experiencing weight stigma makes you feel like crap. It makes you feel devalued and like less of a person and like you don't have a place in the world. That was Dr. Scott Kahan, director of the National Center for Weight and Wellness. Dr. Kahan is also a clinician specializing in obesity treatment, preventative medicine, and clinical nutrition, and a public health advocate focused on obesity treatment policy and weight stigma. And you're listening to Weight Matters, where we unpack the science behind our weight, why it matters, and the effects it has on our health, psychology, and society. This season, join Drs. Louis Aroni and Katherine Saunders, leading experts in the field of obesity medicine and co-founders of IntelliHealth, as they tackle the many ways weight impacts our broader health and, along with experts in the field, explore innovative strategies for preventing and treating obesity. In this episode, Dr. Kahan describes how weight stigmas prevent many patients from receiving the care they need. He also explains the difference between implicit and explicit biases and offers advice to patients and clinicians who are looking to combat their biases around weight and obesity treatment. We're glad to have you along for this journey. There's a lot to discuss, so let's dive in. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, guys. So we'll start with a question about your current position and and what really led you to be interested in this field. Well, I went to medical school certainly not knowing about the field of obesity medicine, but also not really knowing what I wanted to do. And I never saw myself as sort of a general internist or, you know, a pediatrician or the like. I enjoyed everything I did in school, but I I was really looking for something that I was more passionate about. I'd always been interested to an extent in chronic disease nutrition. And so I initially thought that I was going to be an epidemiologist. I thought I was going to do interventions for chronic disease prevention and chronic nutrition. And I started going in that field and my medical trainings shifted into public health training. And then I was lucky to find a field called preventive medicine, which very few doctors know, but it's a you know formal residency trained field that straddles clinical medicine and public health. And so I did a, another residency in preventive medicine, got training in public health as part of that. And that was uh, just around 20 years ago. So it was when obesity was starting to really become less of a fringe area of practice and much more relevant on the national scene policy-wise and and otherwise. And so more of the grants coming in at that point were around obesity research. I got very interested there. And then I got lucky enough to be able to be mentored at the obesity clinic at the university I was in by a, a wonderful clinician, Larry Cheskin. And then I went to my first obesity society meeting. Back then it was NASO. 
And among some other uh, fantastic speakers, I got to hear Lou Aroni speak. And by the end of that conference, I was hooked. And so from then on, uh, largely over the last two decades, I have been focused in this area. Initially, I was still more on a research focus, but that's mixed between clinical and research and policy and advocacy. And so like you guys, I have such an exciting and passionate career in this, this great field. One of your areas of interest, I know, is stigma, both internal stigma that people face uh, as well as external stigma and uh, the way that it can create a barrier to successful treatment. Tell us a little bit about what you've been doing and, and your thoughts about stigma and how it impacts treatment. Yeah. So, you know, another thing that I didn't mention was that I also have my own history of weight problems. So I was a heavy kid and like so many kids and, and also adults, I experienced teasing and fat shaming and so forth. And so uh, without question, that underlies a lot of the reason that both interested in the world of obesity, but especially in the area of weight bias. So this is something that I learned early on when I came into the field. There were so many passionate clinicians in the field, but many of those who were very passionate and very focused on patient care and research around obesity, you could hear subtle things in the way they talked about patients or the way they talked to patients that just didn't seem very respectful. And then around the same time as I was getting more and more focused in the field, some of the foremost researchers in the area of weight stigma were really gearing up a lot of the fundamental research in this area. So Kelly Brownell, for one, and Rebecca Poole, another, and many other similar specialists in this field. And so it, it was an area that really caught my attention, both from, again, a, a personal perspective, as well as from things that we all see out in society, in the media. It's just so commonplace. So I've really tried to make that one of the centerpieces of my teaching and practice in the field. That's great. What do you do now at your clinic? What is your treatment program like? So we have a multidisciplinary treatment clinic. We have a bunch of doctors and dietitians and psychologists and exercise physiologists, and we practice evidence-based obesity medicine. And so some of this, of course, is counseling and diet and exercise behavioral change. And some of it is treatment with medication or surgery or more intensive structured medically monitored diets or the like. But some of it is more subtle. So for example, a lot of what we do, certainly the psychologists, but even the non-psychologists, we help treat patients who have experienced weight stigma over the years or even throughout their entire lives. When people experience weight stigma, they tend to internalize that and believe it. And that makes it harder on the one hand to successfully manage weight. We have lots of studies showing that experiencing weight stigma tends to make more weight come on. But on top of that, experiencing weight stigma makes you feel like crap. It makes you feel devalued and uh, like less of a person and like you don't have a place in the world the same as the next person who doesn't carry as much weight. So in addition to all the things that one would normally think happens in a uh, obesity clinic, we also really focus on 
more of the subtle things like that to try to help people feel better and live better, and also as it pertains to supporting their their ongoing weight management. Thanks for for the information, Scott. You had described before when you were talking about what got you interested in the field that you noticed weight bias and weight stigma even among providers in the field of obesity medicine. It's really fascinating to me. I remember at one of the Obesity Week conferences, you were doing a demonstration about how we all have some level of internal bias. And I remember you called me up on stage and had me do one of these tests in front of in front of an audience. And I was surprised to to see that I had some bias as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how providers and and really people in general can be aware and how they can tell if they have bias and what we can do about it? So first of all, I think living in our society, our thin obsessed and often fat shaming society, I, I think it's hard for almost anyone to not have some degree of weight bias. And so the goal here is not necessarily to be pristine and pure. Rather, the goal is to better know thyself, to appreciate if you have various biases that, especially those that can creep into the clinic and your interactions with patients. And once you realize that, then you can move forward on trying to counteract that and better support your patients. So we can think about weight bias in two categories, explicit and implicit biases. So explicit biases are the really nasty things that we thankfully less so see today, but still see a lot of today. So that would be like more than a few times I'd be walking down the street with either one of my patients or someone who's heavy and a car would drive by and they'd put the window down and yell out, hey, you fatso, or, you know, hey, you big fat whale, you shouldn't be walking or something like that. And of course, that's not something that we see all that often among healthcare providers, at least not anymore. But the other category of weight stigma, implicit weight bias, is extremely, extremely common. This derives from the deep down types of biases that get ingrained, again, from living and growing up in the type of fat shaming, thin obsessed society that we live in. So, for example, there's been many studies showing that Even obesity specialists who dedicate their whole lives, their whole professional lives to obesity, they often have deeply held beliefs that patients are lazy or that they deserve being heavy, that it's their fault. In the vast majority of those cases, it's not that they intentionally mean that, and it's certainly not that they intentionally want to harm or devalue their patients, but those types of implicit underlying beliefs and assumptions are are not uncommon at all. And what you described, Catherine, uh, same with me. The first time I took that implicit bias test, I also learned a lot about some of my implicit biases, and I've taken it over and over and again longitudinally as I've gone through the field, and I've seen slow improvements in how I perform there. So I think this is something that is really valuable for anyone who interacts with any patient because very few doctors are not going to see heavy patients. You can go online and do this for free. Uh, Harvard has, it's like a 10-minute online implicit 
bias test. It's at implicit.harvard.edu slash implicit. And you can actually take these implicit bias tests across a range of potential prejudices and biases, whether gender bias, whether racial bias, or weight bias. And virtually everyone I've ever spoken to who's gone through this exercise has been very surprised, and it has been a positive experience in the end because it helps them become more aware of some very subtle biases that they might not otherwise realize and that might otherwise impact their interactions with patients. I think it's critical when you're treating patients to recognize your own bias. And what we tell patients in our center is that it's not your fault. This is not your fault. The way that diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease are not your fault. And that we're on the side of the patient against the disease. I think that's one of the most critical things that doctors, nurse practitioners, and others who are trying to treat obesity effectively need to remember that it's you and the patient against the disease. You're not prosecuting somebody for having obesity. But let me ask you this. It's well documented that 2% or less of people with obesity are receiving guideline recommended treatment with medication, behavior, and all the things we know are so successful. Do you think bias has something to do with that? I, without question, believe that weight bias is central in that issue for a number of reasons and from a number of angles. So first of all, as you all know, evidence-based, guideline-driven obesity treatments are traditionally not covered by Medicare or healthcare payers. Still, pharmacotherapy is not covered. It was only a few years ago that Medicare decided to cover counseling in primary care for obesity. It was only a little over a decade ago that Medicare decided to cover bariatric surgery for severe obesity. And it is likely that various types of weight bias underlie healthcare decision makers and policymakers beliefs around people with obesity and ultimately their decisions around whether to allow for various treatments to be covered, the ease with which they can be covered, and so forth. Then on the level of the healthcare provider, a lot of these implicit biases likely play a role in the likelihood of healthcare providers offering evidence-based treatments beyond just telling people to eat less and exercise more. So to use the analogy that you brought up just recently, Lou, it would be all but unheard of if a primary care doctor told a patient with diabetes that they needed to get their diabetes under control before they'd be willing to write a prescription for an anti-diabetic agent. But yet that's essentially 
what happens with respect to the unwillingness of healthcare providers, particularly in primary care, to not, quote, allow their patients to use medications for obesity or refer for bariatric surgery for obesity because there's this perception that they don't deserve it and that they should prove their worth first. They should get their obesity under control. They should stick on their diet and lose all their weight, and then maybe they'll be morally eligible for some type of treatment. And then weight bias also is relevant in patients themselves. So internalized weight bias among people who have to live their lives with obesity and especially severe obesity is further another reason that these treatments are rarely used. I can't tell you how many patients, and I know I'm speaking to people right now who can say the same thing right back. You guys know this as well as anyone. How many patients do we see where they're clinically ideal candidates for medications that could really help change the trajectory of the challenges they've had with obesity for years or decades, and they they just will not consider them. They don't feel it's appropriate because they think they should be able to pick themselves up from their bootstraps and lose the weight and stick to the diet and not be starving, hungry, craving all the time. Thank you for sharing all of this, Scott. It's so helpful for listeners to hear that all of these phenomena exist, you know, internalized bias and external bias, and really talking about how these kind of biases and this kind of stigma leads to poor health outcomes and lack of of utilization of care. We absolutely see so, so many people in our practice who have been told by by many healthcare providers, oh, just eat less and exercise more. And it doesn't work for most people. And, you know, maybe they can lose some weight, but they keep regaining. And, you know, it's this pattern of losing, regaining, losing, regaining until they're so frustrated and blame themselves. So Dr. Oni mentioned early on, one of the first things he taught me was not to judge and to really partner with the patient. And so we always talk about how it's not your fault and this is not will power. And so I think in the field of obesity medicine, we have a great vocabulary to to really demonstrate our empathy and demonstrate our understanding of obesity as a disease and have so much respect for what people are going through. It's hard, I think, that without this sort of specialized training and without a real understanding of what obesity is, why it's a disease, why it's not just a lifestyle problem, most healthcare providers don't know how to talk about obesity with their patients. And that absolutely adds to the lack of utilization of obesity resources. And so I'm sure many listeners have had the experience where, you know, their providers just don't bring up their weight. They're scared to talk about their weight. They don't know what to do about their weight. Um, or they bring it up in a really, really inappropriate way. So for listeners who've experienced this kind of of stigma. What is your best advice for how to handle it, how to really overcome it, and how to enable themselves to not fall into this pattern of blame and leading to to worse health outcomes? Well, I think at the most basic level, the most valuable thing that anyone can do, whether it's patients themselves 
or whether it's healthcare providers, the most basic thing we can all do is to learn more about obesity, the science, the physiology, the evidence. And when we do that, it's hard once you really learn just how complex it is and fascinating it is and what an uphill battle people who struggle with weight are having to fight on their own at least. I think it's much harder for patients to continue to have the same level of internalized bias and for healthcare providers who learn more about the science of obesity to continue to have as much negativity toward patients or uh, explicit or implicit weight bias. So I think that's one of the most central things that we can all do. I hope that every general doctor out there has an opportunity to, for example, go to an obesity week conference or otherwise, you know, now lots of opportunities online to learn really good evidence-based obesity education. Same thing with patients. We now have lots of of patient, consumer-focused, good education out there from the Obesity Action Coalition, for one. There's now some very good books out there, including Lou's books, that are geared specifically to the general public so that they can learn more about what this is all about. And hopefully that should limit a lot of the internalized uh, stigma that they feel. And once that happens, then that opens up a lot more opportunities. If patients can give themselves a break, if patients can appreciate that they're not at fault, that they're not bad people just because their weight is higher than the next person, then I would hope that they might have more confidence to push back against slights in the healthcare field. So if their doctor is sort of finger pointing at them to, you know, really take care of themselves and eat healthy because your life depends on it and you really got to grow up here, that they can push back against that and demand the respect that they deserve and either hopefully educate that provider on some of the nuances of obesity, or go find another provider that will both treat them with respect and that will give them the opportunity to utilize evidence-based treatments that may ultimately be very helpful for them. That's terrific. I'm sure you have the same experience, which is that many patients come in and when we, we start talking to them, explain what is wrong with them, they, they start crying because no one has ever told them that. And like, how come no one ever told me that? Why did I have to wait this long and go through this kind of difficulty and pain before I got to the point where I heard the story? Mm -hmm. It's really uh, an interesting experience, and I'm hearing it more and more. One of the things you're talking about is finding a doctor who has an interest in obesity. How can people do that? I mean, do you have any advice for our listeners? How does someone find an obesity medicine specialist out there? I mean, there's been dramatic growth in the field. Uh, we're seeing hundreds to a thousand physicians being board certified every year. What's your advice for that patient? Yeah, well, I think you just pointed out the first place that I'd point them. Lou and I and our colleagues 10 years ago now initiated the American Board of Obesity Medicine, which certifies obesity medicine providers. We now have 
well, we've got to be getting close to 5,000 board-certified obesity medicine providers. There's a clinician directory lookup on the ABOM website that has the list cut up by area of the country, city, state, and so forth. And so from there, the vast majority of people will be within uh, a relatively short distance of at least one, if not many, obesity medicine providers. Now, I will say, and this is a problem that Lou and I have spoken about many times along with the rest of the board uh, of ABOM, just being board certified doesn't necessarily mean that the provider is going to practice evidence-based obesity care or that the provider is not necessarily going to have stigmatizing beliefs and practices around patients. And unfortunately, there's really no way of getting around that. If they're able to do the preliminary work and pass a test and so forth, they're able to be board certified. So I still think there, you know, we have to be careful because there just is so much nonsense out there. But nonetheless, it's a great place to start and you'll likely find a number of very well-meaning, very well-educated people who are either specializing explicitly in obesity medicine or who have a good part of their primary care practice informed by and focused on obesity medicine. But frankly, you know, anybody listening to this podcast, they can certainly reach out to me. I'm sure they can reach out to you, Lou, and you, Catherine. And, you know, we can give plenty of suggestions on either specialists that live in their area or, like with IntelliHealth, it's much easier to get good care even if you don't have someone in the immediate vicinity of where you live. So as long as people start looking, I think there is a very, very good chance that they'll be able to find some good resources for themselves. Thanks, Scott. That's really great advice for people to find obesity medicine specialists. I want to circle back to something you said earlier about Medicare and commercial insurances not covering obesity medicine. It's clear that this is a huge problem that's beyond just individual stigma. And there's so much that needs to be done. I know that a lot of your work focuses on obesity treatment policy and advocacy regarding weight stigma. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you're working on now and what's in the pipeline for the future and what you've been experiencing in this area. The most important thing that I think I've been working on, along with a number of my colleagues, is working with policymakers to try to advocate for our field, to try to educate them not only on obesity and evidence-based obesity care, but also about weight bias itself. And as we were talking about before, because access to evidence-based treatments is so lacking. I think that's one of the most impactful things we can do. If we can change the minds of policymakers from national level to local level to healthcare level policymakers so that people have more access to the treatments that are known to be helpful, I think that's one of the most 
important things we can do over the next few years to help address the obesity epidemic that we have now. It's certainly not the only thing, and there's plenty of public health directions we need to go and economic changes and changes to the food environment and preventive interventions. But this is is one of the more important things that has to happen. So I've spent a lot of my time over many years, but especially uh, in recent years, continuing to focus with policymakers. And I think we're making real progress. I think we've certainly seen some changes in the past few years. I think there's a lot, lot more to come in the near future. Scott, that's really helpful. I want to thank you for being with us today. Uh, You know, it's really been uh, insightful. All of your experience, all of the things you've done in the field have been incredibly valuable. And we appreciate uh, your being a guest with us today. Thank you, guys. It's my pleasure. Thank you for listening to Weight Matters. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. To learn more about how Dr. Saunders and Dr. Aroni are working to transform specialized treatments for chronic conditions through the best in medical science and advanced technologies, visit IntelliHealth.co backslash podcast. And be sure to follow, rate, and review this show wherever you listen to podcasts.